October day. If you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with the call to worship. Uh, I love this psalm. Psalm 34 begins with talking about the psalmist cries out that he will bless the Lord at all times. And, you know, whether you've had a good week or a bad week, our hope is ultimately in the Lord. And hopefully this morning we can call out to the Lord and bless his name at all times. And then he goes on to talk about my soul makes its boast in the Lord. And we'll talk about boasting a little bit today. It's in some of the hymns that we're singing, but this idea of our boast being in the Lord alone, not in our ability, not in our wisdom, our strength, our riches, but in the Lord. So I'll read the bold section this morning if you'll follow along after me with the non-bold section. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him, 246, we'll sing a newer song, Be Thou My Vision. I just wanted to point out one of the verses. Verse 4 says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Be my inheritance now and always. Let's sing the song together.
That gets me in the getter. I love Paul. Paul is so awesome. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, just verse 15. Don't include 16 in this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think we can all relate with Paul. There's times where we are foremost sinners of all than other times, but uh, with the right understanding that we are all sinners. Today's message is going to be awesome. It's going to put... Uh, from Romans 3, we're going to have an awesome message on, on Paul's bringing forth the difference between faith and law. And it is, it is so good. Paul does such a good job. If you would all pray with me this prayer of confession, kind of going along with this confession of sin. Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things, you have created us in your image and call us to serve and worship you. And yet, in our sin, we have violated your law. And because of our sin, we are unable to please you and satisfy the demands of the law. But in the fullness of time, you sent your Son to fulfill the demands of the law for his people. And so, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, have compassion on us, and by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruits of holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you please turn with me to hymn number 224? Sing before the throne.
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are humbled as we come before you, the great and mighty and awesome God, sovereign over all of us, over all creation. We come to you with awe. We come to you with respect and just want to glorify you more than anything else, Lord. Father, in our everyday lives, we come to you, Father, and ask that, that you would give us the power, that you would breathe in us the power to, to walk out in obedience the faith that you have given us. May we be an inspiration to those around us, that they see something in us that is lacking maybe in their lives, and that we could say, it's, it's not me, it's the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus. That's, that's what you're seeing. And I hope, Lord, that that is indeed what people are seeing, that we're representing you in a, in a real way, in a true way, Lord. Father, we ask that this day would be set apart in our hearts as we lift up your name, as we lift up your truth, as Kindle brings your word to us, that he reveals to us, Lord, the, the truth that Paul would have us say, have us know, Lord, in, in what uh, Romans 3 has got to say for us, to, to us, and that we would be receptive for that, Lord. 
Be with us the rest of this, this service, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In our confession of faith, the baptism, the Baptist catechism, excuse me, what is faith in Jesus Christ? You know, it's such a simple question. You would think that uh, for those of us, at least in the body of Christ, that would be an easy, easy thought or an easy answer, but it, it not, it's not always that way. The answer that the Baptist Catechism gives is faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll be, like we did last week, taking a little break from the Gospel of John talk about the law and the gospel. Um, I know I could put it on the bulletin, that's sort of my fault, but if you go to our website, it's what the kind of art for these, we'll do a series of three sermons on the law and the gospel, and one thing I like to do whenever we take a break from the book that we're going through, in this case the Gospel of John, is it's good to talk about things that affect our everyday life, you know, and Maybe some things that might come to your mind are parenting or marriage or, you know, finances. And so this idea of long gospel can tend to feel like that doesn't really affect me on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just a theological argument, just a theological discussion. It doesn't really have an effect on how I live my life from day to day. But I would argue the opposite. <laughs> it actually has a great effect on everything that we do, every decision that we make. Everything that we do in our lives, how we understand the scriptures, how we understand the role of the church and preaching, how we understand parenting, our dealing with our own sin, it all comes down to how do we understand the law and the gospel? How do we understand what law we are under? Are we under a law at all? What is the gospel? What Does it remove the law? How does it affect how we see the law? All these things are questions that we hope to answer through this series. So last week we looked at the law of works, the law, the moral law, more specifically, the Ten Commandments. And we looked at how it is not just a list of arbitrary commands, arbitrary do's and don'ts that Moses just decided to bring down from the mountain, but they are coming from the very character and nature of God because they reflect his nature, right? Thou shalt not lie is a reflection of the God of truth. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery is a reflection of God as faithful, loyal. All these things are connected to the nature and character of God. And so because the law comes from God, the Ten Commandments, it's not something that we can change, that changes over time. It is, it is binding on all people at all times. And because of that, we looked at how the Ten Commandments didn't just begin in the book of Exodus, right? Or the book of Deuteronomy, but actually in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, right? That all people that are made in the image of God have the law of God written on their hearts. This moral obligation that it is binding on them. And we're sinful, and so the law has been corrupted, it's been covered up by calluses of our own sin and unrighteousness, but the law in the Garden of Eden was written on Adam and Eve's heart perfectly. 
And part of that, as we talked about last week, was this covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, that if they obeyed the law, if they followed his commandments, if they didn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that he would bless them with eternal life. He would give them, he would glorify them. We could use that kind of language of consummation. So there was this promise held out that if they obeyed, if they followed God's law, he would bless them. But if they did not, he would curse them. And so we see these blessings and curses in the garden. We see the tree of life that was this kind of promise of eternal life. If they would follow God's law, if they would obey him, then he would give them eternal life. But if they did not, he said, if you do not obey me, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So there's this blessing and curse motif of this covenant of works. That if you do what I say, you'll live. <laughs> if you don't, there will be curses. And so we know what happens. It's not a surprise. The fall happens. The serpent comes in, tempts out and Eve. And so they lose their right standing before God. They lose this communion with God. And the law sort of changes. Right? It was this thing that was supposed to bring them life. It was this commandment. It was a good commandment, right? Love me, love your neighbor. There's nothing wrong with that. The law is good. We know that. But because of sin, it now became this burden that they had to obey in order to receive life. And so it became a weight, a curse. <laughs> the law became this ministry of death that instead of bringing them life, it only convicted them of their sin. As Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't want to covet until I saw the law, do not covet. And it made me want to covet, <laughs> right? And so we see this with our kids. You tell them not to do something, what do they want to do? They want to do that thing. This is rebellion in us. And so we talked about the law last week, and now we're going to talk about the gospel, or what we have written in the bulletin there, the law of faith, as Paul will say in Romans 3. That this is the contrast to the law. That the law is this commandment that says do, and the gospel is this great promise that says it has been done. It's God's great remedy to the fall of man. That there was no need for a gospel before the fall. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but there's no need for a gospel before the fall because there's no sin. <laughs> so the gospel is God's remedy to the fall into sin, planned from the foundation of the world. And as Paul will use this language, as we'll read this morning in Romans 3, this idea of the law of faith, which kind of sounds like weird language, he's connecting law and faith, but what he's really saying is the law fulfilled by Christ and our faith in him as the law keeper. And so we see this contrast between covenants of work and covenants of grace, where this grace is given, not earned by us. It's received with open hands, not earned by us, where the benefits are given by God himself through Christ. So hopefully we'll pull this out as we go. Next week we'll talk about the law as it pertains to the believer, right? So just something to look forward to there. But let's read Romans 3. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Notice this threefold structure that is here the law of works, the law of faith, and the law in the hands of Christ. Paul says this Having just talked about how all are under sin, both Jews and Gentiles, he says this Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But, those great words, but, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified, sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible word that is your revelation to us, Lord, your word and will to us that we might believe and have life this morning, Lord. We are weary, we are heavy laden with many weights, the weight of the law that we cannot fulfill, the weight of our sin that condemns us, the weight and worries of this world that, that fight against our flesh, Satan and his cronies that come against us every moment of every day that try to weigh us down and condemn ourselves, Lord. This morning we come before you. We ask that you would revive us this morning, that you would revive us this morning by your spirit and by your word, that you would speak life into us through the gospel of Christ, that we would see that there's no hope for us in our obedience to the law, that it is only in the obedience of Christ this morning. May we rest in him alone this morning and receive this great gift of salvation by faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, fairly simple outline this morning. I hope to not take too much time. We're going to answer a couple questions, and then we're going to try to really focus on applying this law and gospel distinction. So first, the question we're going to ask is, what is the gospel? Right? Just as we did this morning, what is faith? A simple question, but sometimes hard to define. So we're going to ask the question and try to answer, what is the gospel? What is the gospel of God? And then next, we're going to look at, where do we find this gospel? Where is it in the scriptures? And what does it have to do with us? And then we'll try to apply these truths 
at the end. So, what is the gospel of God? Literally translated, many of you know it means good news. <laughs> good news. Good news. That the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's nothing other than that. It is good news. It is this joyous proclamation of what God has done in Christ. Now, we use the words in a couple different ways, as we talked about last week. Law can mean different things depending on which context it's used in. Same thing with the word gospel. Right? We're, we're, we're studying the book of the Gospel of John. Does that mean there's four different gospels? <laughs> well, in one sense, yes, accounts of what Jesus did in his life and ministry, but we're not using that word in the same way this morning. So not, not a theological account of what Jesus did, and sometimes people will even refer to the New Testament as the time of the gospel. They'll say the Old Testament was the time of the law, the New Testament is the time of the gospel. That's not how we're using it this morning. We're talking about it in the kind of strict or narrow sense. The strict or narrow sense. What is the gospel? It is the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the current session of Christ for sinners. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, what's he say? I delivered to you as of first importance. He's saying there's one thing, and it's the top priority. What's he say? That Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried according to the Scriptures, and that he was raised according to the Scriptures. Don't get me started on that verse. There's a lot of interesting things to look at. What's it mean according to the scriptures? Is that the New Testament scriptures, the Old Testament? It's, I'm stopping myself from going down that track. But Paul says, think about it. He said, I'm delivering to you of first importance the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the historical facts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And I think sometimes if you were to ask somebody on the street, what is the gospel? Their first response might be to say, you know, it's how Christ affected me. They might start talking about their personal witness, which is good, but we got to be careful that we're not identifying the gospel with our witness, how the gospel has affected us, but the gospel is historical, objective facts. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. So that's the narrow sense. But the gospel isn't just facts. It's not just you know, if I was to go around proclaiming the gospel and just saying, Jesus died, and walk away from someone, that's not, <laughs> that's just a fact. Proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel, is this call to respond to those facts, right? It is saying Christ has died for sinners, he's been raised to new life, believe, repent of your sin, turn from your old life of rebellion, and turn toward your Savior. So it's not just facts, it's a promise. It's a, it's a promise of eternal life for all who believe. It's a free gift of salvation because of the work of Christ. So it's not just facts, it's a call to respond to those facts. And hopefully you're starting to see this contrast between law and gospel, right? The law and the gospel. Salvation by works, Salvation by faith. Righteousness earned and righteousness given as a free gift. These covenants of works where the benefits have to be earned and a covenant of grace 
as we read this morning, where the benefits are given. This is what we call the law-gospel contrast. So the law says do, the gospel says it's done. So that's the gospel, that's our first question. The next question, as we asked last week, we have to ask, where does this gospel begin? Where does it begin? Does it begin in Matthew 1.1? Does it begin in John 1.1, right? Or another way we could phrase this question is, what about Old Testament saints? What about people that were born before Christ? Were they saved? How were they saved? Were they saved by obeying the law? Where does this gospel begin? And as we've said many times before, it begins in the garden. <laughs> you guys know where I'm going to go. <laughs> it begins in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, we have this great promise. After the fall, Adam and Eve had just sinned. Their nakedness has been exposed. Their guilt and shame is uncovered. Satan is there accusing them. And God steps in. In the midst of cursing the serpent, he says that one will come from the woman, a seed, the offspring of the woman, will come and crush the head of the serpent. That one is going to come from the woman, suffer, and save God's people. So this is good news, right? This is good news. This is a proclamation that God is going to do something about man's sin. God is going to send someone, the seed of the woman, in Genesis 3.15, that's going to crush the head of the serpent, defeat Satan, defeat sin, and defeat death, ultimately. And there's lots of ways that we could talk about this, but this, is, this gospel begins in Genesis 3.15. This is what we call the promise of the gospel. It, uh, theologians call this the proto-evangelion. <laughs> which is just a fancy $10 word for the promise of the gospel, this first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. But we know that this gospel does not stop there, that it's developed throughout the Old Testament. As our confession says, by further steps. So it's not just the seed of the woman, but God shows, he reveals more about this gospel. What is this gospel going to look like? Who is going to be this seed of the woman? Where is it going to come from? What's the work that this seed is going to do? And so we have further revelation. As you get into the book of Genesis, you see God promise to Abraham that he's going to have a seed that's going to bless the nations. Amazing. As you go through the Old Testament, you have the promises, the types, the shadows, all these sacrifices in the Old Testament pointing forward to the work that this mediator, this Messiah, would do. The King of David, the King of Solomon, all these things are pointing forward to revealing more about this promise of what the Messiah, this one mediator between God and man, would do. And so we call this a covenant of grace. Why? Because it's distinct from this covenant of works. The covenant of works in the garden was, do this and live. But this promise of salvation through the coming mediator is what we call the covenant of grace. This covenant of grace where salvation or justification is not earned by us, but it is given by faith. It's by looking to the promised one. So this is so amazing to think about, but when we go and we read Genesis and Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and the whole Old Testament, these people 
are looking forward to the one to come. They're looking forward to this coming Messiah. They're looking forward to this one who would bring about these promised blessings of salvation from sin and death and Satan so that they might be saved. And so if you go to the book of Hebrews, if you turn to Hebrews 11, what do you see? By faith, Abel believed the Lord. By faith, Abraham believed the Lord. By faith, Moses believed the Lord. Believed the Lord about what? Was it just belief in random promises that God gave? No, it was belief in Christ who was to come. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. So these promises, these types and shadows reveal truths about this promised one to come, this great gospel of God whereby benefits wouldn't be earned but given, salvation wouldn't be earned by obedience to the law but given as a gift, is promised throughout the Old Testament. And so when we come to the New Testament, what are some of the first verses we see? You could turn there with me if you want. Matthew 1.1, what's it say? The first verse in the New Testament. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's amazing. Matthew is connecting this person of Christ to the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Matthew is saying, the promised one has come. You don't need to wait around for anyone else. The promised one has come. The one that was promised in the Old Testament has now come to fulfill. And if you read the first four chapters of Matthew, Matthew uses this word continually. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. <laughs> it's almost like he wants us to get that. <laughs> This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. John is saying, the promised one is here. The one from the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, is promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. It's shadowy, it's, it's not as clear as we see it today, but it is there. And so when Christ comes on the scene, what's his purpose? What's his mission? What's his work? He'll use that language in John 17. He'll say, this is eternal life, that my people believe in you and the one whom he sent, having accomplished the work that you set me to do. So Jesus is saying, I had work to do. He's a worker. <laughs> Jesus is a worker. What's the work that he's come to do? He's come to accomplish salvation. He's come to accomplish salvation. So maybe you've never thought of this way before. We talk a lot here about covenants of works, covenants of grace. We're called Covenant Church. Hopefully we talk about covenants. What did Christ come to do? Is the covenant of grace this covenant where God just forgets our sins, He sweeps them under the rug, He says... I'll just forget about those. No big deal. No. God is just, as we read this morning in Romans 3. God is just. So sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. And there's another problem. We're not righteous. 
As Paul had just said in Romans 2, none is righteous. So there's a twofold problem. There's a lack of righteousness for us, and there's the problem of our sin. And both of those have to be dealt with. So what is this covenant of grace? Is it something where God just sweeps our sin under the rug, and he just says, it's okay that you're not righteous, I'm just going to accept you anyway. No, that would be unjust of God. What is the covenant of grace? It is the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ. It's the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ. That Christ had a work to do, as we saw in John 17. I've been given a task to complete. I have to complete it. He had to complete it. What was the work? It was to secure perfect righteousness for his people and then to suffer the punishment that their sin deserved. What does Paul say in Galatians 3? Cursed is everyone who is under the law, but Christ became a curse for us. So cursed is everyone, let's just read it here, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ did what we could not. He fulfilled the law and he suffered the punishment. He became a curse for us. He took the punishment that we deserve, just like in the Old Testament. I was telling Andrew about this this week. We were talking about this. On the Day of Atonement, there was the two goats that were brought before the people. One was a perfect, spotless animal, symbolizing perfect righteousness that would be killed. Their blood would be spilled to pay for the sins of the people. But then there was another goat. The priest would put his hand on the head of the goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to that goat and send it out into the wilderness. This is what Christ has done. He is the perfect sacrifice who not only is perfectly righteous, but takes the sin that we deserve. As we read in 2 Corinthians, He became sin who knew no sin. Not that Christ became a sinner, right Andrew? <laughs> but he didn't become a sinner. He didn't become a sinner, but he was treated as if he had sinned, this perfect sacrifice for us. So Christ came not to do away with the covenant of works, but to fulfill it. In his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he did everything that we could not. Fulfilled the law where we could not, and now his spirit applies those great benefits of redemption, justification, sanctification, adoption, to the souls of his people so that we might be washed, cleansed, and made right with God, that we might have communion with God. What was lost in the garden has now been pos made possible because of Christ and the work of the Spirit in our lives. So this is the law and the gospel. And to apply these, we need both. We need both law and gospel. We need both law and gospel. The law convicts us of our sin and our need for perfect righteousness. The gospel shows us that there is salvation from our sin through the righteousness of Christ. The law says you must fulfill the law perfectly. 
the gospel says Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly. The law says do this and live so that you might be saved. The gospel says that it's done and one has taken the curse for us. So this is the law and the gospel. And we need both of these in every aspect of our life. What do I mean? This affects everything that we do. It affects what we do here on a Sunday. The proclamation of the gospel. We need both the law and the gospel. What do I mean? If I was to only preach law, that would be legalism. Law without the gospel. It would reduce Christianity to moral commands. Christianity would simply be just a good moral club. If you do these things, you're a Christian. If you live a certain way, that makes you a Christian. It reduces Christianity to moralism. It turns faith into faithfulness. It turns faith into faithfulness. What do I mean? Faith is resting. Faithfulness is doing. It's not resting, it becomes doing. And so, I say that because many places might mention Jesus, they might mention the gospel, they might mention the Spirit, but the overarching me message is, if you're more obedient, God will love you more. If you do more good works, if you do more good for God, if you're more obedient, He'll love you more, He'll accept you more, He'll have more favor in your life. And what it does is it turns the gospel of God back into a covenant of works where we need to do more things in order to earn God's favor, his love, his blessing. And so this law that people tell us to obey could be God's law, it could be good, or it could be man's law. It could be things that we've added to the law of God. So that is law without gospel. But if we were to only preach the law or the gospel without the law, this would be licentiousness. What do I mean? This is sort of the hyper grace movement, right? Where it doesn't matter what you do, God is just going to forgive you. Doesn't matter if you think it's sinful or not. God doesn't really care. He's just here to forgive. Doesn't matter if you sin. It's not really a big deal. This is the gospel without the law, quote unquote, gospel without the law. And so we need both. Right? We need to be convicted of our sin. We need to see that there's a moral code that God calls his people to follow, but we will fall short of that, and that's why we need the gospel. So it affects our preaching. What else does it affect? It affects how we read the scriptures, right? Maybe you're reading the Bible in your personal Bible reading time. If you only look at the Bible through the lens of the law, everything just becomes, again, commands. <laughs> Do this, do that, do this, do that. I was talking with some brothers this week, and they had someone tell them that most of the New Testament is just commands on how to live the Christian life. Now those are present, they're there, but to reduce the New Testament to just moral commands is again to go back to the law. So we need both law and gospel in preaching and when we read our scriptures, but this gets down even into simple things like parenting how we shepherd our kids. If we only give our kids law, you did this wrong, you sinned, you broke this commandment, what we are communicating, whether we realize it or not, is that obedience equals life. If you do this, 
I'll be happy with you. If you do that, I'll love you more. The same thing. Yes, we are to show our kids the way they should go. We're to discipline them, disciple them. But we also need to give them the gospel, right? We need to give them the gospel that they can't perfectly obey, that they won't obey us perfectly, that they will fall short, but Christ never did. We should show them the commandment that they broke. If they lie, if they steal, if they hurt someone, we need to show them that that's not loving their neighbor. <laughs> They've broken God's commandment, but Christ always fulfilled the law. He never failed. He never failed to love his neighbor. He never failed to love God. He always did. And so their trust needs to be in him. So this is law-only parenting. But there's also gospel-only parenting. What do I mean? Where kids get to do whatever they want. There's no consequences. There's no repercussions. There's no following through. There's no discipline. It's just, my kids could never be wrong. Right? That's sort of this hyper-grace parenting. And a small disclaimer, the truth is, kids are all different, right? Kids are all different. I can tell you that. <laughs> my firstborn is different than my secondborn, okay? So kids are all different. And I think we can be tempted to think that well-behaving kids equals good parenting, right? If the kid is good, that means everything's good. That's not always true, right? <laughs> we have these friends. Nope, nobody you guys know. But they have a kid who loves to obey, but she loves to make sure that everybody knows how much she's obeying. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? Yeah. She loves to know how much she, everyone needs to know how she's following the rules, how she's doing what her parents said and going above and beyond, right? So we can see there that there's some pride present. <laughs> she might be obeying her parents, but she wants praise. She wants flattery for what she's doing and so just because a kid is well-behaved doesn't mean that their heart is right. And so all that to say, parenting, as one book puts it, is really shepherding a child's heart. It's shepherding a child's heart. It's caring for the child, not just for the short term, but for the long term. Wanting them to know and glorify God with their life. To be a good citizen, to respect their elders, to love their neighbors, and to know that our kids are not going to be perfect. <laughs> They're going to sin. They're going to fall short. No matter how well we parent, no matter how much we love them, they're going to sin. But as a parent, how do we respond to that? How do we care for them? We need both the law and the gospel. We need to show them that sin is wrong, that there's consequences for their actions. But God has sent his son, and that's good news. So that's the law and gospel and parenting but that it even affects us at an individual level. How do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with our sin? Maybe you haven't thought of that in terms of law and gospel. When we sin, maybe you've just committed the biggest sin of your life. How do you handle that? What's your response to that? Many of us are tempted to be legalists, to turn to the law. What do we say? I just need to do better next time. I just need to do better next time. And we think if we heap all this guilt and shame on ourselves, that somehow we can beat ourselves into conformity to God's law. 
We can beat ourselves up, we'll tighten the noose, we'll tighten, we'll get stricter, that will make us obey. This leads to legalism in our hearts. And we make our obedience to the law of God the standard by which we're made right with God. Does that make sense? We make our obedience to God the grounds of our right standing with God. And we do this with anything. <laughs> Maybe you feel like you watch Netflix too much. And so i got to cut that out of my life, which is fine. If you watch Netflix too much, you should cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. <laughs> but if we start placing that law on other people, you can't have Netflix because I can. And I think it makes you more holy. Paul says that these things have an appearance of wisdom, but they're no help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What does that mean? There's things that can appear wise. They can look smart. They can look wise. But they don't actually get to the heart. Someone could not watch Netflix for their whole life. I don't know why I'm picking on Netflix. <laughs> you could not watch Netflix your whole life and still be the most proud person in the world. Look how good I am. Look how much... I don't do what all those other sinners are doing. You've made a law in your mind. You've then bound people to obey that law. You've added to God's commands. And you've held other people to that. So that's why we can't be legalists when it comes to our sin or our temptation. We need the gospel as well. But we also need to be aware of this gospel-only approach to our sin. Where sin is sort of this light thing. It doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. God will forgive our sins. Maybe we'll quote Romans. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Right? So it doesn't matter. The law is not a big deal. I'm under grace now. It's interesting. If you go to Romans 6, where Paul says that, he's just spent the last couple verses talking about how we should flee from our sin. <laughs> so we can talk about that more next week. But we can't treat the gospel as this get-out-of-jail-free card where our sin doesn't really matter, and that any correction in the Christian life is just labeled as legalism, right? We have to be careful of that. 1 John 3 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That is some strong language. <laughs> that is strong language, and it should cause us to have a holy reverence and fear for when we sin. Are we making a practice of sinning? We shouldn't. Because our sin put Christ on the cross. And so we need to be careful. We need to have both law and gospel. The law should convict us of our sin. The gospel should drive us to Christ and our need for perfect righteousness. So just to close, this law-gospel distinction should create humility and praise in our lives. Humility and praise. Praise because what a great God we serve. <laughs> Amen? What a great God we serve. We don't deserve it. We, don't, we didn't earn it. We didn't earn the perfect righteousness. But God gives us this grace as a gift. So he's worthy of our worship. Christ has done it. He's obeyed the law for us. The covenant of works kept for us so that now we might have grace in Christ. But this should also humble us. As Paul says in Romans 3, what becomes of our boasting? 
How tempted are we to be proud, to boast in ourselves, in our abilities? This eliminates boasting. The gospel eliminates boasting. It eliminates pride because there's nothing that we could do to earn it. There's nothing that makes us better than anyone else. God, out of free grace, has saved us, has changed us. And so may our cry this morning be, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the law and the gospel. The law that says do, but we can't. But the gospel is the good news of Christ that says it is done. It is finished. It is complete. Help us to trust and believe in that this morning. And as we go and live our Christian lives throughout this week, may we see our need for both law and gospel. May we, when we sin, may we see the ways that we fall short, the ways that we are guilty before a holy God. But may we not stop there. May we turn to the grace of God in the gospel and then seek to live and uphold the law of God because of the life that he has given us. Not to earn life, but because God has given us life. May we live for you and boast in the work of Christ this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So now we come to the time of our service, the Lord's Supper, where we, each week, we proclaim the law and the gospel through the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the law and the gospel each week. Why? This is not an empty ritual. It's not just something we do every week that's mindless. What are we doing? We're remembering that our sin put our Savior on the cross. That's why Christ had to come. Our sin placed Him there. Our sin is why the perfect Son of God had to be sacrificed on a wooden cross so that our sin and iniquity might be paid for. His blood shed, His body broken. This is convicting. <laughs> but we also remember the Gospel. That Christ is our assurance. That He did what we could not. He died the death that we deserved. And He assures us by this supper. This Lord's Supper, this sacrament, is a means of assurance. We're supposed to look at the supper, at the bread and the wine, and say, I could not fulfill the law, but Christ could. I could not meet its demands, but Christ could. Christ alone is our hope of life in life and in death, and this is a time where we remember that. So we come to the table confessing our sin. We come saying, I'm a sinner, I'm weak, I'm needy, I'm helpless, I need Christ. But we also come rejoicing, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that He is able to remedy what we have messed up. He brings us grace by the power of the Spirit through the gospel. So let's remember that this week as we come to the table. Let's pray for the supper. Lord, we thank you for this means of grace that you've given us by which we feed on Christ by faith. We feed on Christ by faith. And we're reminded of his words in John 6 that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has
has eternal life. This morning, may we feast on our Savior. <laughs> may we feast on our Savior, not physically, not in some weird cannibalistic way, but by with the eyes of faith. May we behold and believe that Christ has done it all, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, that we're united to him, that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ. We've died to the law as a covenant of works. The law can't condemn us. The law can't come to us and say, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. Christ has done it, and we are in Christ by faith. May we come this morning, would you bless this supper to the nourishment of our souls, that we might eat and drink and have life. In your name we pray, amen. Form a line, we'll take the elements back to our seats and partake together. week of the body of our Lord that was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. So now we remember that Christ has died so that our sin, our iniquity might be covered. We take the cup, this cup of the new covenant that is not like the old, that Israel broke, that all of us break. When we sin, Christ came to make a new, better covenant by which he would forgive our sins and remember our iniquity no more. So we take the cup and we remember that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand, we'll respond now with the same... Uh, hymn 150, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I was thinking about verse 2 this morning, connected to what we just talked about. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except in the death of Christ my God. 
all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice him to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, nor thorns compose so rich a crown. We have a great Savior. Let's praise him this morning.
sing with me hymn number 13 the doxology praise god from whom all blessings Thank you. 